I don't know if you worshipped at home this morning. I worshipped here. Uh, I love that song, that last song we sang particularly. When you talk about the, uh, when you talk about the New Testament, the New Testament writers consistently had two events kind of in mind as they wrote, or two set of events. One is Jesus' death and resurrection. They consistently talk. We've seen it First Peter talk about, don't forget about the resurrection of Christ, the living hope that we have because of that. But the second one that they constantly have in mind, and we've been studying First Thessalonians on Wednesday night, and we'll see this actually in the book of First Peter in a week or two, that the second thing they had in mind was the coming again of our King, Jesus' return. And so as we stand here today, we stand in the midst of those two. We're right in between the glorious resurrection of our Lord and the coming return of our Savior. And so as we do that, as we worship together, I want us to consistently be reminded of the good things that God has done for us and the good things that He will do for us. Let me give you a quick update, and I told you I would do this earlier, and I want to go ahead and do it now to let you know about our plans for reopening. We are, as most places are, talking about opening in phases. And so the first step in that, and we will release that this week so that you can see that and see a roadmap, not with specific dates, but with specific ideas as we go through those phases. The first aspect of that is we want to get people back together for worship on Sunday morning in this place. Now we have been cleared to begin to think that direction, not only by our um, state governor, but also by the city of Nashville Metro Health uh, Department. And so we've been in that process of thinking, of planning, of getting ready. When all of this happened, as most of you know, we weren't live streaming. And so we have kind of jumped full force into that, how you are watching today. And now we're in the process of getting everything back to where we can live stream and be live in person here. And let me just tell you the date that we have targeted. So write this down. You can put it there. It is the weekend of the June 6th, 7th weekend, that weekend, that is Saturday and Sunday. Now, I'll explain in a minute why there are two dates there, but we want you to write that down. That's three weeks from this weekend, all right? So you have Memorial Day, then you have a last weekend May, and then the first weekend of June, we are planning to have on-site worship services here. We're going to have two worship services. The reason for that is because, according to all of the suggestions by um, our state officials, our local officials, our national officials, following all the guidelines that we have, we don't think there's any way that we can assure that being in one service on Sunday morning at our normal time, that we would be able to follow the guidelines that they have suggested. And so we're going to have two services. We're going to spread those two services out over a Saturday evening and a Sunday morning. That gives us the opportunity to clean more thoroughly after each service. That's one of the things as churches are reopening that people are suggesting and reminding us of. And we've talked with those that clean our church and they will make sure that after our Saturday evening service that it is completely clean and wiped down and ready to go for Sunday morning. And then Sunday morning we will be able to do that as well. And so we will have two services, one on Saturday night, June 6th at 5 p.m., And on Sunday morning at 10.30 in the morning, our normal worship time, those will be our two services. Now, they will be two distinct services, different services. We realize also that as we move into phase one of our reopening, that because of all the things that are out there, we are going to be unable, unable to have preschool worship, children's worship, nursery care as we have had in the past. 
And because of that, we realize that for many of our families, that makes the decision to come to worship and what is our traditional, typical, blended worship, what we do on Sunday morning here at 1030, may especially difficult. And so we are targeting that Saturday evening, 5 o'clock worship service for families. Families with kids of all ages, from birth all the way through high school. And that service will be a little more high energy. That service will be a little more um, geared towards a family understanding of what's happening. The sermon will be kind of crafted in that way. The music will be crafted in that way. Now, you, anyone is more than welcome to come, but we want you to know that that Saturday night service or Saturday evening service at 5 is going to be there. We're doing it at 5 because we know that's past nap time. For some people, they're still doing nap. That's before or right around supper time. You can come and, and worship with us and then go eat supper, eat supper before and come. But we want you to know, families, that is for you. That is what we, we want you to be a part of that. And then Sunday morning at 1030 will be our blended worship service, what we uh, typically do. That is the service that will be live streamed. And so we will continue to live stream our worship services, as we've mentioned, from here on out. And so we want you to be aware of that, that that is the plan. That is phase one. Um, as we said this week, we will put out a document. We'll give an email. We'll let you know how to find that about what all of that looks like, what the phases look like for reopening for us, but we wanted you to have that information right from the beginning. I cannot wait to see many of you back in this place. Now, we will tell you that as we reopen, we were going to suggest there will be some changes to how we operate, and you'll see that in uh, in, in the document we put out this week. Um, we're going to say that if you feel you're at risk or you're part of that at-risk group, we're going to um, advise you to seriously consider continuing to stream online, to be a part of our services through this method. But we also are looking forward to those of you that can coming back and being here. Even today, just as I'm talking to you, there are just a few posters on the front pew that some in our church put together with their pictures on it and some words of encouragement. Man, that is awesome. It feels great for us to see that even as we're leading you virtually online. All right. Let's dive into God's Word. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to continue our study of this book. And let me just tell you right from the beginning that what Peter has shown us throughout the first chapter and a half of this book, he is now going to describe the implications of that in more detail going forward. Specifically, he has showed us that we have a living hope, an inheritance in him. A marvelous light has rescued us. We have been rescued into his marvelous light. And what the rest of this book is really going to show us is, how do we live to shine for Christ in this darkened world? I just want to tell you that today we're going to read over and go through some of the most controversial verses in the whole New Testament. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. There is no way that we can dive fully into what we would need to to fully cover all of those verses. And my hope is over this week, as Jeff and I have our noon Bible studies, our noon discussion times that we do on, on every day at noon on Facebook Live and Instagram, that I'll be able to kind of delve into some of these issues a little deeper. And so we're going to do some surface level kind of things as we go through today. Otherwise, we'd be here for a long time, or at least I would be here for a long time. You may not be, but I would be here for a long time. And so as we think through it, I just want you to know from the beginning, we're going to kind of breeze past some of that. I'll give some um, background and information because I think it's important. 
But I want us to understand that today we want to get the centrality of what Peter is trying to say. And what he's telling us in this passage is that we, as Christians, are called to live differently. That it will be counterintuitive to the way society works. I was thinking about a trip I took right before this whole uh, quarantine happened. I was um, I, I used to, for inspiration, uh, for thinking through, seeing what's out there, as I was thinking through sermons, as I was looking for resources, I would go to Lifeway. Lifeway stores. The one in Glenbrook and Hendersonville, or the one downtown, or wherever I may be, sometimes Mount Juliet or Franklin. I would go to those stores, and I would just walk around and look, and look at books, and pick up books, and think through that. Well, that obviously, even before the quarantine, could not happen. And so I turned that into Barnes and Noble. I would go to Barnes and Noble and look around, that old feel of a bookstore. Now, let me just say right from the very beginning, Barnes and Noble religious books are different than Lifeway religious books. There are all kinds of stuff there. And I remember, this was right before the quarantine happened. Some of you may remember this kind of world. I was in Barnes and Noble, not worrying about what I was touching and picking up and looking at. No masks were being worn. Everybody was, there was no social distancing happening. I remember looking at all the religious books and right next to it were the self-help books and thinking about how different many of them are from what scripture teaches. Those self-help books and religious books often talk about our autonomous spiritual destiny, our beings of people that are looking out to control our destiny, to get to power, to determine who we are. And yet Peter reminds us that that has nothing to do with what it means to truly follow Christ. So today, there are just two main points to this whole message. And there are lots of things that come under those. But the first main point today is simply this, that if we're going to live for the Lord in our day, we need to remember our status. Now, Peter has spent the whole first chapter and a half describing this, but he even gives it another piece of attention here at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. Now, what gets lost in even that modern version of The translation there, what I'm using Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, verse 11, it says, dear friends. That's not the actual word that is there. The word friends is not there. In the original language, the actual word there is beloved. Now, by whom are they loved? Who are they loved by? Well, obviously by Peter, he's writing to them, and that's why the dear friends translation is there, my beloved friends. But it means something deeper than that. It means that they are loved by God. That their status, that their identity is based on where they stand with Almighty God. And because of their relationship with Him, because of Jesus and what He has done for us, because of His death and resurrection, because of their acceptance of that, they are loved by God. Then He gives them that title. That sounds strangely familiar because it's similar to what He called them at the very beginning of the book. If you can remember that three or four weeks ago, when He calls them strangers and exiles. In the beginning it was elect exiles, but it means that this world is not our home. He says, this is not where you are settling down. You are just traveling through. I read one commentary this week that says that what He's telling them is that in this world, as Christians, we should be pitching tents, not... Building castles. But this is a mobile time. This is a momentary place. This is not our home. And that goes against most of our human nature. We want to settle down. We want to get comfortable. 
We want to find security. One of the things that's kind of been absent in the midst of this quarantine for many of us is travel. Some, some in our church, I know, travel a lot. Some are still traveling. Some have places, other places. But travel, spring break plans got altered for, for many. Summer travel plans are already being altered for many. What I was thinking about when I was reading this is about those times in our lives when we've had an extended travel. Particularly, I was thinking about a time when I went to Brazil with our church. That trip for the summer has been canceled, but I was thinking back fondly on trips of the past. But there was one particular trip I remember where the travel home was not great. You can imagine, we had spent 24 hours traveling to Brazil. We had done ministry there for a week and a half. We were exhausted, and we got on a plane to fly home. We get on the plane in Brazil normally to fly home around 10 o'clock at night, Brazilian time, 8 or 9 o'clock our time. We fly overnight. We get home. Almost all the trips we've taken recently, we land in Miami. We get to Miami. We have to go get our bags. We have to go through customs. We have to recheck it in a different part of the airport. Then we have to go get on the plane. Normally, that's a process that doesn't take real long, and we're there in plenty of time to get on the plane. But on this particular day, I remember our window was tight. And as we got in line, got through, there was a little snag in getting through customs. Everybody gets through customs. We get in line to get in security check. And the line is literally almost out the door of Miami International Airport. While we're there, this TSA official comes up to a part of our group. The part of our group was myself and the four of the Brooks family. Randy, Lisa, Callie, and Courtney. And says, hey, there's a faster line. Three gates over. And so we get out of line, go three gates over, and get in what is decidedly not a faster line. We get through security. We literally run with bags on our back, running through the airport to try to catch our plane that's flying home. It's the last flight we will get. The last one we have, we get home from that flight, two hours, we're home, we're safe, we're back with our families, it's great. We get to the gate, and they are shutting the door, and the lady says, I'm sorry, the plane has left. We look out the window, it is obvious the plane has not left. It is there. We talk for a minute, we try to persuade, we try to get all that together, nothing works. I remember specifically, Lisa looks at me and says, Pastor, can you go stand over there? I need to talk to this lady for a moment without my pastor present. Nothing worked. They rebooked us on a flight six hours later. Six hours later, we fly, but we don't fly home. We fly to Washington, D.C., where we have another two-hour layover. We get to Washington, D.C., we land, we sit in there for two hours, we come home. When I got home, by the way, when we were getting ready to land at home, thunderstorms in the area, we had to circle for an hour. I'll never forget walking in that door, giving hugs to my kids at the airport, walking in that door that night, doing everything, getting everything out, and sitting down in my recliner and just simply relaxing. It's kind of strange, but sometimes one of the things I enjoy most about traveling is that moment when I finally get home. Paul or Peter here says that we're not home yet. We're travelers. Beloved, love travelers, but this is the journey. This is not the destination. 
People to whom Peter are writing knew what it meant to live as exiles and strangers. They were misunderstood and despised. Many of them had probably been verbally abused, socially and politically disenfranchised, physically and emotionally weary. They were people who were lonely and vulnerable and reviled. Peter says to them, you are strangers and exiles. It's the same phrase that Abraham used in Genesis 23 to describe who he was as he's traveling through the Hittites. that would have bound them to the foundation of their faith. Now maybe some of you, even in the midst of this quarantine, that find yourself in desperate situations, misunderstood. Society looks at us and calls us hateful and hypocritical, that we're beaten down by our own failure. What we have to understand is our darkest, most complicated circumstances in our life can be the grounds through which God shines the brightest from his own strength. Now what he was telling them, and I love this, that even though you may be strangers and exiles in a foreign land, and you may be far from your heavenly home right now, you were never far from him. You may face betrayal, You might even in your life face illness, cancer, or the loss of loved ones. You may lose your job. You may fail an exam. But you will never face the withdrawal of God's love from you. Your permanent status is beloved of God. Your unchangeable identity is a beloved citizen of the city of God. And our identity is the foundation upon which all conduct discussions happen. Christian identity always precedes Christian conduct in Scripture. Who we are changes what we do, which is the second main point that will cover really almost a full chapter of this text, half of one chapter and half of another. The second thing that we ought to do in this passage that tells us how to live in this world is that we are to show off our salvation. Show off our salvation. Look what it says here. Starting again in verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles, and then he gives them this, to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul and conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. What Peter's going to tell them here is your distinct identity must lead to a distinct way of life. You are not aimless wanderers here. You are strangers. You are exiles. But that doesn't mean we don't have purpose. We are on a mission. And our mission, he says, is to resist evil and do good for the glory of God and the spread of his kingdom. Here's what I love about what he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us those two things that don't sound like groundbreaking, and they're not. Resist evil and do good. Resist evil and do good. Those aren't monumental things. If I came today and say, I've got two points about how to live life more successfully, resist evil, and do good, that is not earth-shattering stuff. But what he says is, the reason that we do that is not just to get a good name or a good reputation, although that may be part of it. It's not to advance in life, although that may come with it. That the reason we do it is to give glory to our Heavenly Father for what He has done and who He is, and To spread the kingdom that is coming. He basically says that if you want to live a life that glorifies God, that extends his kingdom, if you want to live a good life, then you live worshipfully and you live evangelistically. For the glory of God. For the spread of his kingdom. So what does he mean by those two things? Well, he says, 
that we are to resist evil. He gives this idea that there is this war raging in our soul. That's what he says, to abstain from sinful desires or resist evil and the war that wages against the soul. There is a spiritual war that is raging externally and internally. The desires he talks about within us that want to do things that are against what God would desire. And even, and he means this in a way that they would understand, even the pagans understand, even those outside of their faith in Christ, even those outside of their faith understand that there are certain things that are just evil in the way they act. So he says, don't give in to unbridled desires in your life. Resist evil. Don't lash out in anger. Refuse to be jealous. Avoid greed. Reject racism. Don't open that website. Despise pride and get rid of selfishness. Resist evil. Listen, there's some stuff in our lives. and I hear people ask sometimes the question, like, I'm not sure what God's will is for my life, or I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. There's some stuff in our lives that we know is not God's will, and the only way that we can handle it is to resist it in the power of God because of what He's done for us. Just resist it. The second thing he says is then do good. Resist evil, do good. Act in ways that even non-Christians recognize as good. Help those in need. Live generously. Forgive others. Serve. Be good people. He tells us the reason. So he has two things. Resist evil. Do good. And he says to do it for two reasons. First of all, for the glory of God. That when Christ comes again, and he's coming. We'll talk about that more next week. He's coming. When he comes again, that they will recognize either before or at that moment the goodness and the reality and the truth, the vindication of our God. And they'll look back and say, you know what? Either I knew it or I should have known it because of so-and-so in my life and the way that they live. Tied into that is this understanding that in the midst of living the way that God has called us to live, that you may, through that, and he'll talk about this some of the specific examples in a minute, through that, See people come to faith in Christ because of it. Resist evil and do good. And here's how the rest of this chapter and the first half of the next chapter play out. He says, and if you need some specific examples, here they are. This is what I love about the Bible. The Bible is not some high in the sky, high in the sky, high up in the ivory tower, philosophical treatise on life. It gets down into the very reality of the lives that you and I live. And what happens in the midst of this is he says, I want to give you four areas of your life where you need to resist evil and to do good. And there's one word that's going to be in here, and I'm just going to tell you right from the beginning, I realize that this word maybe more than any other word, is one of those things like rubbing a cat the wrong way and getting the reaction of the cat. I understand. Now I'm about to say a word in just a moment that some of you, when I say it, are going to go, oh, here we go. 
I'm going to say a word that you're going to be like, I don't want to hear this. You're going to want to mentally tune out or you're going to want to either either force it on somebody else or think, well, they ought to be thinking about that. I want you to think about this and how this word applies to you in your situation. And I'm going to give you four specific areas, but there's one key word in almost all of them. And that word that he uses again and again is the word submit. Submit. Just to speak to the culture in which most of us live. There may not be a word that is harder for Americans to do and act out because of our nature and the way that our country was built and who we are than the word submit. Now here's the truth. Again, it goes back to our identity in Christ. All of these, we're going to talk about submitting in various parts of our lives, but all of them come first and foremost from a life that has been submitted to God through Jesus. He starts in kind of a strange place. He starts by telling them to submit and to do good and to resist evil in their civic life. Let me just be real honest with you here. I've been preaching for a long time now. Every week, part of the church, pastoring a church. Somewhere around 45 to 46 sermons a year on Sunday morning. And I've been doing this now for almost 19 years. I don't know that on those 19 years, I have ever used the word civic in a sermon note. But that's exactly what Peter calls us to do. To resist evil and to do good. And to submit in our civic life. Look what he says in verse 13. Submit, verse 13, to every human authority because of the Lord. Why? Because of the Lord. Not because of something else. Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. In our civic life, we need to live a life that gives glory and honor and praise to God. That we resist evil. That we do good. That we submit to the authorities that God has placed over us. These first century Christians would have understood the complexity and the cost of identifying with Jesus in the public square. They they were persecuted. I mean, these people, when I say persecution, they weren't just made fun of, although that apparently was part of it. Slander is mentioned in here, that that is part of it. Just so you know, first century Christians, by Romans and Jewish people and other faiths, other religions that were trying to keep them down, would accuse Christians of a variety of things, of, of Murder and incest and cannibalism. You're like, how in the world could they do that? Well, they would take phrases that Christians would use and they would turn them on themselves. For instance, Christians often talk about the agape feast, the love feast with brothers and sisters. And so they imagine that being something completely different than what it was, just a potluck having dinner together. They imagined lurid details in there. Or the cannibalism and murder thing. Remember, they talked about all the time that we're eating his body and drinking his blood. And so they, people just hear that on the outside without the context of Christianity. They think immediately that is actually happening. And so they were accused of all sorts of things. Mainly they were accused of disturbing the peace of the Roman Empire. And that was a, 
a sentence, if accused and properly convicted, that brought could bring death to you. We have to understand, when he's talking about the emperor, when he's talking about governors here, he is talking about people that were actively seeking out to destroy the Christian faith because they were afraid of an uprising that might happen. This isn't somebody that made a policy that was a little different than you would have made. This is somebody that's actively seeking you out. He says that you ought to willingly place yourself under their authority. Now here's the truth. There are some things in our government, in our society, in our institutions that sometimes are contrary or difficult for Christians to navigate. But here's what I want to tell you. Nothing that we experience in our culture here in America has any semblance of resembling how difficult it was for the Christians in Peter's day in the Roman Empire to live out their faith. But that doesn't mean we don't have temptations in this area. Sometimes we feel like we're treated unfairly or people say things against us that aren't true about our faith or who we are or our God or we get offended or we get upset. And The natural reaction is to, to lash out in one of three ways generally. One is that we rage. We fight. The way that I see this most right now is social media. Man, we just let it go. We somehow figure out or think that the figures or systems or political parties or political appointees or politicians themselves or news organizations have become our enemies. Peter would remind him, as Paul would, that you fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spirits, things that we cannot see. So we lash out on social media, tear down somebody or go after them. I'm sure that if people of Peter's day would have had social media, they would have tried or could have gone and lashed out against about the emperor and what he was doing, their governors, what was going on. And Peter says, that's not the right position to have when it comes. That doesn't mean that we don't fight injustice and we don't, when they do things that are against biblical or, or God-given understandings, that we don't talk about that and fight against that. But what I'm talking is the personal attacks and the character assassination that often happens from Christians to people we don't agree with. That's not how you act. How the word civic is some ideas we get down the road of civility, that we ought to treat one another with respect. He says, honor everyone, especially your leaders. That's why it's, it's interesting to see how the dynamic changes by the persons that's in office. Six years ago, social media was filled with Christians railing, oftentimes, against the current political system. Put up against Christians who were praising the current political system. Fighting back and forth with one another about what true Christianity is. In crazy ways, that flipped when the government flipped, when the leadership flipped. Now now those Christians that six years ago didn't really talk about honoring our president that much or honoring what's going on are suddenly, like you have to honor the president, what the Bible says. And those Christians that were 
fighting vehemently against. We've got to honor our president six years ago. Somehow many of them have turned into, but not this one. Back and forth you go. And in the midst of it, the thing that truly gets damaged is the witness of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives. We fight. Sometimes when we feel attacked, we flee. We huddle up. We insulate ourselves. We get our Christian group together and say, it doesn't matter what's going on in there. It's us four no more. We're going to huddle in here. We're going to bow down in here. We're going to get in here and nobody else has to worry about it. Or we conform. We say it's too hard. Freedom in Christ gives me the ability to do whatever I want to. That's what Paul, Peter even addresses here. He says, yes, you're free to do whatever, but in your freedom, don't give it license to sin. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Man, there, are some, there are some believers, and myself included sometimes, that need to hear that. Don't let your freedom in Christ serve as a cover-up for evil. For doing things you shouldn't be doing. For saying words you shouldn't be saying. For watching things you shouldn't be watching. For looking up stuff you shouldn't be looking up. For drinking what you shouldn't be drinking. Eating what you shouldn't be eating. Living as you shouldn't be living. Talking as you shouldn't be talking. Don't use your freedom in Christ as a cover-up for evil. Ultimately, fighting, fleeing, or conforming all go against God's call in our lives. All go against our call to resist evil and do good for the glory of God and the spread of His kingdom. Second area he talks about. And this is an area that I wish I had much more time to go into some details about what's happening here because I think there's some misunderstanding sometimes. and I don't even fully understand this in the way that I should just because of my background and who I am. But let me just tell you, I can tell you biblically what's happening here. The second area, we're going to call it professional life just because we don't have an equivalent today necessarily. Although I will talk about some implications from this. Verse 18 says, Household slaves... Submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. What credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it, but when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor to God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who just, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Obviously here, it starts, and maybe your version of the Bible that you're looking at says servants, but the actual phrase is household slaves. Now here's what's interesting. He's going into what some people call the household codes, where you talk about how to live in a house, and we'll talk about that more specifically in a minute. And part of a lot of houses in that day, somewhere 25 to 30% of the Roman Empire were Slaves, most of them household slaves. So they lived in the house, around the house, with the people. They did the chores. They did the task for people there. Now, one of the issues that we have when we hear these words, when we read these words, is that for most of us, we, in American context, immediately think to the American slave trade that, it, slave trade that was a blight on our society. That was one of those things that we wish was not a part of our history, but it is. And it was wrong, 
and unjust. Well, we have to understand when we read biblical understanding of slavery, although still not good, all right, and Peter's not claiming that slavery itself as an institution is good. In fact, I think Peter, I know God, would have just been completely, was completely angry with the way that this passage was used to justify what happened in America. And so while slavery is not endorsed here, and we'll talk about what he's trying to do in just a moment, understand that what he's saying here is in first century slavery, it was different than what we think of the American slave trade. Most of the time, these were people that were not slaves for life, that they had the ability to get out of slavery. Secondly, that was not a racially based slavery. Sometimes it was a debt-based slavery. Sometimes it was, um, it was because of status and life slavery. But Peter's concern here is that he wants to speak to apparently a group in his congregation that found themselves as believing slaves, servants, in an unbelieving house. And he's asking the question, how should you live in the midst of that? Now here's what's remarkable about this, just to be honest. And I know that this has been used in ways that are contrary to God's will. But what's amazing to us, to me about this, when I study this household code passages, there is in other writings, non-Christian writings, they have these similar kind of household codes and ethics. They do not even address slaves because they weren't considered people or worthy of being addressed. And Peter after giving the general thing for all of us about people in authority, the first group, and in biblical writing, oftentimes what you put first is of importance. The first group that he mentions are those that find themselves in this condition, giving them validity as people and giving them instruction about how to live. Aristotle used to speak, you know, people talk about him as a great philosopher. He used to talk about the fact that, that slaves weren't worthy of instruction because they could not understand it because they did not have personhood. And yet Peter says, my first set of instructions to a specific group of people are to the people that are most vulnerable in our society, the weakest members. And he gives them some specific ways to resist evil and to do good. Now again, I put professional life, that's not a a one-on-one correlation, but I think there are some principles from what he says here that we can apply to our work life, to our professional life. Three simple principles. One of ours, and this isn't going to be on screen, so you just write them down. Don't repay evil for evil. He says, listen, just because your master is being cruel does not mean you can react in cruel ways. Secondly, he says, serve the Lord first. That you are first and foremost a servant of God before you are a servant or an employee of anything else. And then the third thing is to follow the example of Jesus as you live your life. Jesus went to the cross innocent, condemned for something he did not do. For someone, they were killing him without a proper conviction. And yet he didn't utter a word. He went willingly to sacrifice. When we live for the Lord in our employment setting, in our employment area, in the places where we are working for other people, one of the things that we have to remember is that we represent Christ in every relationship we have. And by doing that, we serve him first above all.
Howard Hendricks tells a story of flying a few years ago. There was a long delay on the tarmac. While they're there, a man in front of him became increasingly impatient, as you can imagine. And the flight attendant was the brunt of his frustration. He said all kinds of words, threatened some things, gave her all kinds of trouble. Hendricks says that he was just amazed by the grace and helpfulness that this flight attendant showed. And so afterwards, he said, he went up to her, he waited until everybody else had deplaned, he waited in his seat, he waited for the flight attendant, he said, can I have your name so that I can write your employer and tell them how much I appreciate the way you handled this? She said, sure, sir, I'll give you my name, but here's what you need to know. I don't work for the airline, I work for my Savior. And I did what I did because of my devotion to him. Third area he mentions, doesn't get less controversial, by the way, is the home. Now, here's what's also interesting about this, and we have to understand the context of this. Most of this section on the home is written to wives. First of all, that would have been different than a lot of other areas, and the way that he describes them would have been different than the society at large. He elevates the women in this writing to a place that they would not have had in society. Now, I know in our society, the word submit to your husband, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, gets played a lot because that word in our society sounds oppressive and not like that's not where we are. In their society, he elevates their voice in a way that was different. Here he is specifically writing, it seems, to women who were followers of Jesus who were married to men who were not. And in their society, you were considered, you had to follow whatever your husband's religion was. These women had broken away. There was already an act, would have seen, of treason or rebellion happening there. He doesn't tell them to abandon their faith. He says, live your faith out in such a way that it brings your husband to the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. Well, they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is the inside of the heart, that perishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their faith in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Primarily here, he is speaking to wives in a relationship with an unbeliever. He does give that last statement to husbands that are believers in the way that they ought to treat their wives. He talks about three temptations that happen. And maybe you're a wife that has an unbelieving husband or someone you can't get to follow the Lord like you would like. And there are three temptations in the midst of that sometimes and this is true of just relationships in the home in general husband and wife that when we're with each other when maybe in quarantine for months or as you're walking through life together there are three temptations that sometimes happens one is we use our words in unhelpful ways that's a nice way to say it isn't it we use our words in unhelpful ways we get mad we get angry we know how to cut we know how to slice our partner up and so we do Another temptation is to let external and material distractions get us away from our relationship or to crumble in fear and anxiety. And Paul, or Peter says the opposite of that always needs to happen here. Let your beauty come from within. Let it happen in a place of submission and love. And here's the idea. 
Okay? Sometimes this verse gets used to talk about the fact, see, what they're saying is the woman has to endure whatever. That is not what is being said here. What is being said here is that you ought to live in a way that your life gives glory to God, and because of that, you may win someone to Christ. I think about one of the, the greatest Christian apologists of this, of this time period is a guy named Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a crime writer for the Chicago Tribune. His wife became a believer in Jesus Christ. And he set out to prove her wrong. What he said is that he couldn't get over the fact of this. The more he lived with her after she came to faith in Jesus, the more he saw the change in her life. And eventually, he accepted Christ as well. Husbands, by the way, I do believe that this passage teaches that wives ought to submit to their husbands also believe that you don't have any right to demand it from them. I believe the Ephesian passage, as the corollary passage, also tells us that we as husbands are to submit to our wives, that we are to submit to one another out of love for one another, that we are to live our lives together as Christ lived for us, constantly sacrificing, constantly giving, constantly looking out for the interest of our partner more than our own. It's a mutually engaging relationship. By the way, I talked about he elevates women in this passage. He does that when he says to the husbands, they are your co-heirs of the grace of life. He says at the cross and because of the resurrection, there is no higher and lower. We are on the same level. And then he ends with not only civic life, professional life, home life, but he basically just says, all of life. And this is how he ends. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult. But on the contrary, give a blessing. Since you were called for this, such you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because of the eyes of the Lord on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. He wraps up this entire section by saying this. What matters most of all is, are you on God's side or are you not? And that if you are someone who lives for the Lord, you resist evil and do good. God's going to bless you. But if you are someone who is determined to give your life set against him. Good luck with that. No one wants to stand against our God. What's the point? It goes back to that very first thing. Resist evil and do good for the glory of God and the spread of his kingdom. Maybe you're watching today and you know some specific things in your life that need to change with the way you interact in one of those four areas. Maybe you're watching today and you say, I I don't have any of that because I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm one of those people who's been watching, observing, but I haven't given my life to Jesus. Today can be the day that you accept Christ as your Savior. Today can be the day, Christian, when you begin to live your life more boldly for Him. 
this summer we're going to be walking through the Sermon on the Mount together. One of the things I'm really excited about is all the great teachings that happens. But as I'm preparing for that, I keep hearing that Sermon on the Mount as I'm doing other Bible study. And one of the things that I think about over and over again is when Jesus says, you are the salt and the light of the world, that is our job not to retreat, not to be mad about it, but to live our lives in the midst of this world for the glory of God, for the spread of his kingdom. Maybe you're a believer here today that knows that there's something that needs to change in the way you're living. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Jeff and Amory are going to come and lead us again. And my prayer is that you would live your life resisting evil, doing good for the glory of God and the spread of His kingdom. Let's pray together.